Um, we are in the gospel according to Luke, and I, I say this every single time. Um, if you don't like history, you don't like context, and you don't like an overview, a broad view of the book we're going to study together, uh, you're going to get bored. You could go to sleep. The person next to you will wake you in about a half an hour. Uh, but context is really important. Um, at King's Chapel, we go through books of the Bible. That's our diet. That's our regular diet as we study together. This is our 22nd book as we, as your lead pastor anyway, that we've studied together. Eight Old Testament books, 13 New Testament books. Today starts our third gospel account. We went through the gospel according to Mark uh, way back in 2008. We covered the gospel according to John. And now um, we're starting our third gospel account. Now, fun facts, maybe nobody cares. But I looked at that and I thought, wow, that's, that's covering a lot of ground. Eight Old Testament, 13 New Testament books. So we've studied together and learned together and grew together. So praise God for that. One of the things I've learned as your lead pastor, your teaching pastor, is as we go through the gospel accounts, Matthew, excuse me, Mark and, and, and John, it's been a special time for the church. It's been a special time for me. I hope it's been a special time for you. Uh, walking with Jesus as the gospel writers uh, uh, just reveal him to us as we walk with him uh, day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, um, and just really knowing him and loving him and worshiping him. Now, we believe, as we open up the scriptures, we believe that um, Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke, and he had a specific um, people, an audience in mind when he wrote the book. It's got to give us an overview. We believe that the Bible's inspired, the Bible's inerrant, the Bible's authoritative, that God spoke or, or he breathed out, uh, Timothy 3.16 says. He breathed out by God. That's how we, the word of God was given to us. We also believe that men wrote the Bible who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 tells us. But we also recognize that God used men. God used people. God used folks using their experience, using their personality, using their backgrounds as they write different perspective uh, concerning the good news of Jesus Christ. Matthew wrote the account from a Jewish perspective. He was a, a former and despised tax collector, and his main audience was Jewish. He, he describes Jesus as the unique Messiah, the, the, the promised one. If you open up Matthew 1.1, it starts out with the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew said, hey, look, he's the fulfillment of the promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7 and the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And he, he traces the lineage from Abraham to David, showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish people, the Old Testament prophecies. Something like 500, oh no, excuse me, 50 Old Testament quotes in the book of Matthew, very Jewish in nature. The gospel, according to Mark, as we studied a while ago, was written with a Roman perspective and primary to a Roman audience. Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. Uh, he has described Jesus as the servant savior of the world. Romans, Romans were not so interested in Jewish genealogy. They were more interested in getting things done quickly, fast. 150 present tense verbs in Mark. The word immediately is over and over and over in Mark. We'll just get to the point. That's, that's from a Roman perspective. We know that Mark was not an apostle, but was a companion with Peter. And we see Peter writing really through Mark's account of the gospel. His name is Jesus. John was one of the youngest, they believe, the youngest disciple. He's writing to a Greek audience. 
It was very important. He's the Logos, who be, the, the Word of God, the Word who became God, who is God, excuse me, not who became God as heresy. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Logos be, is God in the flesh, right? So he's, his genealogy is from eternity. Uh, John is unique in writing that. Lots of I am statements pointing to Jesus' deity, right? John, like Luke, gives us the purpose statement. That's what I love about these two gospel accounts. We don't have to wonder, why are you writing this? In John chapter 20, he makes it very clear at the end of his book. Jesus did a lot of signs in the presence of his disciples. He did a lot of work, a lot of works that are not written in his book. But, John writes, these things I've written down for you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son, the eternal Son of God. And that by believing in his name, believing in him, you will have life in his name. John says it's both, it's both apologetic and evangelistic. Unique in and of itself. I think 90% of John is not in any of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Okay? Again, just giving you background. Synoptic gospels. Sin meaning together. Optic meaning to see. Matthew and Mark and Luke cover many of the same events. So if you're reading through the gospel accounts, you'll see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover a lot of the same territory. Not all, but some of the same, especially when he's in ministry in Galilee. The gospel according to Luke was written to Gentiles, was written mainly to Gentiles, which is not the non-Jewish folks. Luke, the writer of this account, is a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Luke, if you don't know this, also wrote Acts. So what you have really is Luke-Acts is, is one book with two volumes, okay? It's really important. One book, two parts. And if you think about it like that, that's, that's the reality of the book. Luke is the, is the, is wrote, I think, I think this estimate around 27 or 30% of the New Testament. Luke wrote more in the New Testament than any other writer in all the New Testament. Paul wrote more books, but Luke wrote more in volume than anyone else in all the New Testament. In order to understand what Luke is saying in the Gospel of Luke, we have to take, step back a little bit and look and see what Luke wrote also in Acts. In Luke 1 and, and, and Luke, uh, excuse me, Acts 1, we see that Luke is not only a historian, but he's given us the purpose of his writings. He is writing as, as for, uh, for a man named Theophilus. He's, he's writing an eyewitness, an orderly account of things that Jesus accomplished. In the book of Acts, what you find in chapter 1, since we already read Luke, uh, is, is a continuation of what Jesus did after his resurrection, after his ascension, Acts chapter 1. In the first book, Gospel according to Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostle whom he has chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, John the baptized, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit many days from now. 
So Luke is saying in the first book, in the first gospel account, in his gospel account, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and while he was teaching on earth until his ascension into heaven. And if you read the gospel according to Luke, we get to chapter 24 another year from now. Uh, he is ascended into heaven at the end of the book. And now Luke is saying in Acts, listen, I'm going to continue writing about the work of Jesus, but it's his ascension and the power of the Holy Spirit coming, and Jesus is still doing things in the church and through the church and through the power of the Holy Spirit. We did a series, and if I could do it over again, I probably would have done Luke-Acts, but we did Acts first. Um, we went through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We chapter by chapter, uh, we called it the Spirit-Empowered Mission. Some of you have been Christians for a long time. You, you may have opened up Bibles or older Bibles and it said the Acts of the Apostles. That's not, that's not um, inspired. That's just a title given to it. Unfortunately, that's not really accurate. There's only two apostles really in the book that's speaking about Peter and Paul. The hero of the book of Acts is Jesus Right, he, It's about Jesus. And what Jesus began to do in Luke, he continues to do through the Spirit as the Spirit is poured out and the church gives birth and people are coming to faith and the church is doing just what Jesus said he would do. He would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Luke and Acts really are books about a mission, the mission of Jesus, what he did while on earth and while he's doing while he's ascended in heaven and which brings us really to today because it's still going on, the mission of God. So it's not just history for history's sake, but to show Theophilus and to teach us what Luke believed God was accomplishing in the world through the Son, through the Spirit, for us even today. So, so who is Luke? For centuries, everyone understood the Gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts were written by the one that Paul calls in Colossians, Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke, the physician. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul lists these, uh, in fact, we just studied Colossians. I think it was Pastor Ricky uh, finished up that book in chapter 4. He lists these people that were with him. Aristarchus and Mark and Justice. They, they are of the circumcision party. They're here and they're comforting me. Paul talks about his fellow Jewish partners. He goes through a list, he's going through this list of people that are with him, um, and he talks about Epaphras. He's one of you. He's from Colossae, the Jewish people, and from Colossae. And then finally, he gets to verse 12, he says, excuse me, verse 14, Luke, the dearly loved physician, is with me. So Luke is Paul's companion. Luke is, is a physician, he's a doctor, and he's a Gentile, he's not Jewish. And many times if you read Acts, which Luke wrote, and you get, like especially in chapter 16 where Luke joins him on his second missionary journey, a lot of the narrative turns to we did this and we did that and we were here and we went there. Luke is with Paul. He's his companion. He's a doctor. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul mentions again another list of people who ministered with him and those who have abandoned him. And he tells Timothy, come with me. For Demas is in love with the present world. He's deserted me. He's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has also gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Paul's in prison. 2 Timothy 4. It's the last thing he's going to pen. The last thing he's going to write. The man has been beaten up. 
Five times he received 39 lashes, scourging, many times beaten with rods. He got stoned in the city and was dragged out. And we're not talking about smoking a bong. He got stoned with rocks, okay? Three times beaten with rods. He, he was shipwrecked. He was bit by a snake. If there's anyone that needed a doctor to go with him, wherever he went, it was him. And God's providence, like, yeah, let me bring this doctor into your life because you're going to need one. <laughs> Only Luke is with me, he writes, as he's facing his martyrdom. Many scholars believe that Luke, and I agree with them, there's some that don't, but there's some that do believe in an early writing, 60, 61, 62, possibly A.D., Luke wrote Luke and Acts. If you read the book of Acts, it just ends. Paul's in Rome. History tells us that he was released from Rome, and then re-arrested and martyred. And it's just kind of Acts just ends, so uh, I agree. I think, I think before Paul ended, his life was ended in martyrdom, 64 maybe, 65 AD, Luke wrote this account. Maybe while in Rome, we don't know. And we don't know nothing about Luke after. He writes his gospel account, we see him in, in the gospel, excuse me, in Acts, and then Acts just ends and Luke's not even heard of anymore. He's not mentioned anywhere except a couple of times with Paul. It's pretty amazing. Uh, pretty amazing. But what we do know about this book, very interesting. Although it's synoptic, it's, it's similar than Ma with Matthew and Mark, only Luke goes into great detail, we'll see, when it comes to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and all that she went through, the song she sang, the broken heart that she endured. How does he know that? Because he talked to her. He spoke firsthand with her. He was an eyewitness. He talked with eyewitnesses. Dr. Luke is only the one in all four accounts of the gospel. He's the only one that mentions that when Peter cut off the ear of the servant in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke's the only one said that Jesus picked up the ear and healed him. I'm glad Mike Tyson wasn't around. But he, he touched him and he was healed. Like Luke, the doctor was like, really? I went to medical school? That was pretty cool, right? I mean, he would pick that up. See, personality, experiences. And it describes... Jesus healing him. Luke the physician would love detail. It's, it's the largest gospel account that we have, 24 chapters. It, it speaks uh, of, of, of histories and lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We'll see that in the beginning. The announcement of Mary culminating in the nativity scene. We can thank Dr. Luke for stories of Zacchaeus, the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The well-known parables of the Pharisee and the publican, the rich man and Lazarus, the prodigal son, all in the gospel according to Luke. A Gentile doctor who emphasizes Jesus' perfection, his, his full humanity. Matthew, as I said, Matthew 1.1, traces Jesus' genealogy from, from Adam, Adam, excuse me, Abraham and David, the Jewish Messiah. When we get to chapter 3 and we see Luke's genealogy, he traces it with Matthew, excuse me, with Abraham and David, but he goes all the way back to who? Adam. Jesus, the Savior of all mankind. That's the point Luke wants to make. Not, not just the Jewish people, but he's the Savior of all mankind. Luke will show us as we get into the gospel account that God's plan of salvation continue from all the way back in Genesis 3.15, continue throughout the whole New Te Old Testament and finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. 
Luke sees this divine purpose as intimately bound up in the love and the mercy of God. And one of the unique features of this gospel account is the way God's love is portrayed to the variety of people throughout his ministry. A variety of kinds of people. Someone once said Matthew's uh, uh, keynote is, in writing is royalty, Mark Power, Luke Love. He was a man of culture. He was a man of, uh, of, uh, who could write well. Luke is very unique showing us how God's love shines through various of people, through, through his parables, through the stories that Jesus tells. Like the message even to the angel concerning people, all people in general in chapter 2. Luke records for us God's grace when the disciples wanted to call down fire and destroy the Samaritans. Luke, uh, Jesus is like, hold on. Really? We find a parable of the Good Samaritan. They were hated people. We find that the grateful leper who's healed, there's a bunch of lepers healed, only one comes back and gives him thanks from Samaritan. He refers to the Gentiles in the Song of Simeon, chapter 2. He speaks of the, of the widow of Zarephath and Naaman, the Syrian, another non-Jew. And we see this record uh, uh, recording for us, Luke, of God's love for all people. And that how everyone coming from all over the world will sit at the kingdom of God, chapter 13. And how the commission to go into all the world preaching the gospel is mentioned in chapter 24. And again, picked up in the book of Acts. Luke shows us the deep Concern and love and mercy that God has for his people. That's why we're calling it Mission to the World. Mission to the World. It doesn't, it doesn't diminish the fact that God's promise came through the Jewish people. Just like we saw that in Isaiah. The fulfillment of God's promise to God's people in the Old Testament. But like Isaiah, and we'll see it in Luke, there's this struggle there's this rejection of the Pharisees and some of the Jewish leaders of the Messiah and that God has called all the nations to come to him. We'll even see things like the temple. Uh, Luke has a lot to say about the temple. Remember, Jesus is there when he's eight days old at the temple. Next, we see Jesus was left behind. Right? Remember that story? He's left behind. His mother and father like, uh, it's been three days. I haven't seen our son. Have you seen him? Like... 12 years old. I know it's a little bit different today, but still, you got to wonder, like, what were they thinking? Uh, Mention the temple. He has a deep interest in people. Uh, he, when, when you do an investigation, we'll look at that in a minute, and you're talking to people, you're getting names. And he, he mentions people by name a lot. He elevates the interest of personal people, like individuals, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Zacchaeus. He talks about the importance of women in the first century. Women were, were uh, very much just put in their place. Luke shows, no, they're the object of God's love and grace, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth, and Anna, and Martha, and his sister Mary, Mary Magdalene, Joanna. He mentions these, all these women by name. Even some he doesn't by name. As a widow in Nain, chapter 7, verse 11 of Nain, about a woman who's weeping at his feet in chapter 7, verse 37. A woman known by no name who's bent over and he heals in chapter 13. A widow who gave all that she had in chapter 21. The daughters of Jerusalem who are weeping as he's headed to the cross. God cares about the women. 
God cares about children. You'll see over and over, Luke tells about the healing of children throughout his gospel account. It's amazing. Uh, a, a child who, let me see, healing a child who was gravely ill, chapter 8, oppressed by demons in chapter 9, a young man who was dead in chapter 7. Each one of them, Luke mentions, because he's an investigator, they're the only child. They're the only child of this family. He loves the poor. Jesus came to preach to the poor, chapter 4. He blessed the poor, chapter 6. He, he cares about the marginalized and the scandalous of his day, tax collectors, tax, tax collectors. Zacchaeus, remember, in the tree. The Pharisee, the Levi, who they were hated, chapter 5. The prodigal son, right, who just spent all he had. It is such an exciting book. and I, I, Today, I just want you to walk away and say, I can't wait to go home and read the book. I can't wait to walk together this great book that just portrays the beauty and the glory and the passion and the love of God. Two more things you'll find in the gospel according to Luke. In Acts, Luke has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is empowering the mission. And he gets a notable place, but in Luke's gospel account, too, the third person of the Trinity was at work, and you'll see a lot of it throughout the, the gospel account. He, the, the Holy Spirit, uh, um, Luke is really preparing us to see what the Holy Spirit has done during Jesus' life so he can, can, can kind of tell us what he's going to do with Pentecost as the Spirit is empowering the church to live on mission. We see him work at the birth, uh, the Holy Spirit work in the miraculous birth of John and Jesus in the praise of God's people in the response of them coming. The Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism and powers him for mission, chapter 4. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the one that drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Jesus himself will rejoice in the Holy Spirit and tells the disciples that the Spirit will come and help them in their time of need, chapter 12. All along is portraying Jesus, dependent on the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and depend on the Father through prayer. Finally, Luke does mention in his gospel account the sinless life of Jesus, and we're going to see that. We're going to see the perfect, sinless, human, God-man throughout this book that he's writing to Theophilus. Especially if you're a community group leader in a community group, there's, this, there's, there's a debate on where, who this Theophilus is. Is just Christians in general? His name is Lover of God. I really... You, you can have your opinion, that's fine. But I really believe Theophilus is someone that actually maybe even hired Luke or, or helped pay for Luke to do this eyewitnessing investigation. He was a man who was probably a new convert. Maybe he's got a Greek name, lover of God is his name. Maybe he was like, listen, this seems to be a Jewish thing. I'm a Gentile. I'm a Greek. How do I fit into this? And Luke is writing to explain to him how God's work of salvation, how his redemptive historical truth and reality has come down to earth and is for the whole world. And he writes Luke, he writes Acts for Theophilus. I hope that studying this book, even just thinking it through right now, you're excited about it. That's, my, that's what I want to get at. That this is going to be good. It sounds great. But family, let me tell you something. It only sounds great, and it only is great if it's true. If it's true. 
Three quick things. We won't, we won't linger. This narrative is biblical. The narrative is historical. And the narrative is purposeful. Turn there with me. Luke is not the one to test the first one or the only one to testify of the validity of the gospel. He writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. I'm sure he is thinking of, of, of the gospel according to Mark, which was written first, that may have been part of his sources that he, he concurred on, you know, that he, 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 he thought through and talked through. I'm sure of that. But he used the word many here. Many, indicating that there were others who, who did some writing as well. We have the other gospel accounts, and, and that's what God had in his sovereign plan, chose to give us authoritative Rule, canon, the four accounts. And the word accomplished here is a very, very particular word. Some of your translations you have fulfilled. The word accomplished is fulfilled. Some of it has been fulfilled among us. Uh, accomplished among us or fulfilled among us. Paul used that word in, in Romans and Colossians to talk about being fully persuaded. But the word can mean, and I think it does here, something that has been accomplished or at least fully completed. Luke is showing us from the very first verse that Jesus is that fulfillment. He is what God has been talking about for centuries through the scripture. Jesus is the awaited Messiah who by his life and his death fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. This, this Jesus of Nazareth is the promised one. Luke is already hinting to his audience, and we'll see that in the first couple of chapters, that God is working out his purposes from long ago. How the specific work and, and, and teaching and, and presentation and, and all the festivals and all the pictures and all the foreshadowing of the Old Testament comes into completion in Jesus Christ. And what's interesting here is, is the words, the, the phrase that says, the things that have been accomplished, it's in a passive voice. In other words, it's something that God is doing. And, and Luke is just giving us the narrative of what God is doing among his people and for his people. God did the work. Our response is simply to praise, to worship, to trust, and to proclaim. Many of you know we went through the book of Isaiah together. We're going to see Isaiah all over this. I think that was one of the reasons we were praying, like, where do we go after Isaiah? This was, you know, months ago. And Luke. So much of Isaiah really comes out in Luke. As I said before, you have the, you have the conflict with the Jewish people, and yet in the midst of that, there's going to be a remnant of rescued and redeemed and saved Jewish people, but God's going to be a light to the nations. And we saw that all over Isaiah. All over Isaiah. We see it in chapter 2. It's Simeon's prophecy. It's echoing Isaiah 49. Luke's very own, Luke, Luke quotes Isaiah 40 when he's talking about John the Baptist in Luke 3. Jesus himself, when he begins his ministry, his public ministry, will open up the scroll and read from Isaiah 61. See, the Old Testament was promises made. The New Testament is promises kept. The Old Testament declared promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to King David, to Jacob. And now the New Testament, um, Luke opens up and says, it's been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled. 
So even before we get into the historical reality, the truth of, of what Luke is going to tell us, he says, look, expect this to be a, a narrative, a historical narrative of what you should have expected to come because God said so. Because God has already said so, and he always fulfills his promises. So as we open up the New Testament, we're not just saying this is, you know, just simply current events. Not just things, these things just happen to happen. No, they're foremost, they're foreseen. The events have now come to pass. And one of the major themes we'll see in the gospel according to Luke is this, this promise made and this fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now the Gentiles are welcomed in. And that's what he's saying right up front. Right up front. So it's biblical. It's following and showing that Jesus is the one that has been promised for centuries. Next, it's historical. Luke purposed writing and stated right in the prologue. He wanted to deliver Theophilus a carefully investigated and orderly account of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And Luke wrote this account to provide this, this individual, Theophilus, with a history of Jesus. And listen, something you need to understand really important here in the first few verses. Luke is writing, and, and even non-believers, this is a fact, Luke is writing in these first few verses in such a way that it is upholding, in that day, upholding all the standards of historical investigation. Luke, unlike the other narratives, is writing deep within uh, secular history to show that what he's writing is not just simply legend, but historical fact. Okay, and, and, and you can see that right here in the first four verses. It's one long Greek sentence, by the way. And he's talking about the ministry, and, and, and he's, he's using this one long Greek sentence, and I could tell you in every single person I read, says the Greek in that sentence, the classical vocabulary, the rhythm and balance, is like no other. Luke is starting his gospel account shouting to the ancient world in his day, that what he's writing is the truth, it's facts, it can't be ignored. No one in Luke's day would have read this account and thought, oh yeah, we're just hearing another legend about Jesus. Just some story some people compiled. It is well documented that Luke's prologue is like many of the other ancient Greek historians of his day. Whether it's, whether it's the Jewish historian Josephus, Herodotus, he's an ancient historian in that day. Uh, one of the ancient writers, which um, I, I just want to read to you this, because just, just to prove what Luke is trying to do here. This is the uh, Peloponnesian War written by a famous historian in that day. Now listen to what he writes as he's writing this story about a war that really took place. He says this, But as to the facts of the occurrences of the war, I have thought it my duty to give them not an ascertained from any chance informant, nor as seemed to be me profitable, but only after investigating with the greatest possible accuracy each detail. In the case of the, both the events in which I myself participated and of those regarding which I got my information from others and the endeavor to discover these facts was a laborious task. No one in that day, no one in that day would thought for a moment that this is not historical 
material being written. Okay? No one. I carefully researched the material. I interviewed eyewitnesses, listened to those who are ministering to the word by being, and being led by the Holy Spirit. Now, a few years ago, I was watching a, a newscast, a, a news station, talking about a census that was taken from Christians. Okay? And, and they were comparing people's intelligences to Christianity. You know, your IQ and whether you're a believer in Christ. It was done in a disparaging way, right? The uneducated people that believe in Jesus. The uneducated people of faith. There's a growing perception, even in our day, that the uneducated are the ones who, like, like, like really you believe this book? Can't be very bright. Can't be very smart. I mean, only gullible people believe in those kind of things. I mean, how many of you heard that story? Like, oh, you're just ignorant. You need more education. Maybe you need to be more of a broader reader. I mean, really, the uneducated fishermen, they couldn't probably even count. <laughs> just shut off your brain. Doesn't take much to really not believe this. Were there everyday blue-collared people who wrote in Scripture? Absolutely. Luke's a doctor. Luke's an influential person. He was not uneducated. He was actually very educated. Yeah, they're blue-collar people. There's no question, but that's not Luke. Highly educated. You can just tell by the Greek language in which he uses. He's been formally trained. He's an articulate and cultural individual. There's some leaders in the church that were poor, some that were rich. There's some that were educated, some that were not educated. Luke is an educated doctor who, who had eyewitnesses and went and talked and listened to and, and wrote down an orderly account of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the majority of the eyewitnesses that he saw, I'm sure, were the apostles, people like Peter and John, they were qualified to preach because they were with Jesus. I'm sure he spoke to a lot of the women who were also eyewitnesses, who were heralds of the gospel in the early church. Luke wanted to tell us an historical account. Things that have accomplished, things that really happened, things that have been done in time. I mean, he talks about it in chapter 1, verse 5, how it was the time of Herod the king. Or chapter 2, it was the first registration of a governor. It's not fiction. It's not legend. Everyone in that day, no matter what you're being told today in schools and colleges, no one in that day thought this was a legend. No one. The narrative eyewitness becomes an opportunity. Look at verse 3. It's good in me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. It seemed good to me also. There are others that have done it. I'm not saying they shouldn't have. I'm just saying it seemed good to me. It's biblical. It's historical. Lastly, and I think we want to drive this home, is verse 4. Why? What is God doing biblically? Why is it written historically? Because it's purposeful. Look at verse 4. That you, and that's you and us, not just the outfits, that's us, that you may have what? Certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The result of Luke's careful research and investigation 
is that reading this gospel account will help us to know the truth, to know for sure what really took place. In fact, the word certainty appears in this long sentence, in this Greek long sentence, verse 1 through 4, one sentence, as the last word for emphasis. It's certainty. He believed that telling the proper story, the historical truth of who Jesus said would produce faith. Luke believed in the power of the gospel. This, is why, this was the entire reason why he wrote the gospel account. Theophilus knew about Jesus, but needed to know Jesus for sure. And that's for us today. There are all kinds of, of speculations and imaginations about the purpose of life and love and hope and eternity. And God has placed in every human heart, Ecclesiastes tells us, eternity. We all need the same thing, and that we all need to know what is certain. Certain about the knowledge of Christ, certain about salvation, certain about knowing Jesus, all that he did, all that he accomplished. We need to know about the virgin birth. We need to know about his obedient and sinless life. We need to know about the wisdom of his teaching, the power of his divine overruling miracles. Not just to know, not just to have history. That's all good stuff, but all this stuff is meant to confirm to authenticate the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the eternal Messiah. And we need to know what Jesus did to save us from the wrath of God. We need to know what, that he suffered in our place and died on a cross for our sins. We need to know that he rose from the grave. Give eternal life for all those who repent and believe on him. We need to know that he ascended into heaven. Where he rules over all things for the glory of God. We need to know all these things are certain. Why? Because you and I doubt, don't we? There are times that we doubt. There are times we're like that man in chapter, uh, we'll see in chapter, uh, in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, who says, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Or Luke chapter 17, increase my faith, Lord. It's all part of the struggle that we have believing and trusting, and, and some days more than others, some days not as much. Westminster Confession says, faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, may be often in many um, ways assailed and weakened. And we struggle through that. And here we have this account. Here is what took place. If sometimes when we doubt, it doesn't mean we're not believers. It just means we're in a broken world struggling at times to keep the faith. To trust God. God's calling us to grow in our faith. God's calling us to attain the truth, to, to attain full assurance through Christ. Let me see. Maybe, maybe there's some of you here this morning. Let me, let me just say this. That have doubts that God loves you. Maybe you're doubting that God loves you. Or maybe you're doubting that God will forgive you. You're not sure. You know, as we study this book together, I, I hope that we encounter people in this gospel account that will remind you of you. Maybe you're left feeling left out or not good enough or not sure what the future may hold. But when we come face to face with Jesus, the historical true reality of the living Christ, he'll give us the answer. For assurance does not come by looking within or by having some special experience. It comes by looking at the face of Jesus for our sure salvation. That is why Luke wrote the gospel of certainty. We can call it that. We're not going to. 
He searched things. He carefully wrote them down logically and accurately, giving us the real history of Jesus. I'm going to invite the band up, and I want to say one more thing as they get ready. And I hope you hear me uh, this morning. Faith comes by the assurance. Faith, the assurance of faith comes by hearing the gospel. Family, we have a Dr. Luke who wrote a book to bring healing to your doubting souls. Luke's gospel account is for anyone who needs to know Jesus. If you're here, you're not sure, you haven't come to faith, you're here. Well, I'm glad you're here because Jesus is going to reveal himself to you in this book. It's also for people who, who not only not met Jesus, but need to see him again. Maybe you're dealing with doubt, maybe you're dealing with difficulty, maybe you're dealing with struggles and hard times, and God's going to reveal himself again to you through this book called the Gospel of Luke. Maybe it's for people who aren't quite sure, just starting to trust Jesus. And maybe it's for people who walk with him for a long time, but you're in a dry place in your life. The Gospel according to Luke. Mission to the world. Do you know for sure? Are you able to live with him? Listen, we, we believe the Bible. Not because it's exciting, and it is. Not simply because it's relevant, and it is. We believe it because it happened. We believe it because it's true. And because it's true and because it happened, we can learn how we can be forgiven, how much we are loved, and the truth that would not only set us free, but will give you hope. That's the gospel according to Luke. Father, thank you for this wonderful description that you have inspired through this physician. Thank you that you were able to, that you have given us this book using his personality, his experiences, but also giving us the absolute truth of who our Savior truly is. So God, we pray as your people that as we walk with Jesus over the next several months, you would strengthen our faith. You would help us to see how much you love us. You would help us to see, which Luke will show us, what it means to be a disciple. And God, you would help us to not remain quiet, but to share the good news of Jesus with those we meet. Lord, we thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' good name. Amen.